you know, if you want to say where are people most likely to encounter false or misleading claims about politics, it's still in the mainstream news. And if you wanted to say what is the most important source of those false or misleading claims, it's the president of the United States, right? He is the most covered individual in the world. He is heavily featured in the news sources that Americans get most of their news from. So it's, it's not surprising that the exposure rates to uh, falsehoods from Trump are going to be vastly higher than a website set up by Macedonian teenagers. Uh, and, and, and that means that, you know, when we're thinking about this problem, it's important not to focus so much on, on the kinds of websites that popped up after 2016. They're a problem. They're part of a, this ecosystem. And in some ways, they're, they're symptomatic of larger questions that we need to think about. But they're not the core source of, of misinformation for almost anybody. And, you know, in some ways, they're more important for what they tell us about the vulnerabilities of our system to misinformation and, you know, the kinds of questions we're going to have to think about how to address going forward. I'm Quinta Jurassic, and this is the Lawfare Podcast, February 20th, 2020. This week on Lawfare's Arbiters of Truth series on disinformation, Evelyn Dweck and I spoke with Brendan Nyhan, a professor of political science at Dartmouth University. We all talk a lot about the crisis of falsehood circulating online, but Nyhan's work focuses on empirical research about what the effects of disinformation and misinformation actually are. And he's found that those effects might play less of a role in political discourse than you'd think, or at least not quite in the way you might think. We talked about the fake news about fake news and the echo chamber about echo chambers. It's the Lawfare Podcast, episode 511, Brendan Nyhan on the empirical effects of disinformation. So, Brendan, thank you so much for joining us on the podcast. I'm going to start off with the most basic of questions. So you're a professor um, of government at Dartmouth College, and you've done fascinating work on the actual effects of disinformation and political countermeasures. So how did you first get interested in this area? Well, after college, I actually helped start one of the first nonpartisan fact checkers. So I was in the trenches um, trying to debunk online misinformation um, in the very early days, um, the kind of blog era of the internet around 2001 to 2004 was the period we were operating. So I was working on how to debunk misinformation online. And that turned out to be a, a question that I came back to once I went to graduate school in political science. Excellent. So let's start with a really simple question then. Does any of this matter or are we just wasting our time with this podcast series? So can you maybe um, tell us a bit about the state of the literature on whether fake news, quotation marks, has any effects on political beliefs or behavior? Sure. I don't think you're wasting your time at all, of course, or I'm wasting my time too. So I think this is a very important topic. At the same time, I do think it's important to be precise about what we know to be true and what people have conjectured or or claims people have made about the effects of fake news and other kinds of misinformation that lack evidence. So what we know is is that the kinds of untrustworthy websites that people became so concerned about uh, seem to have reached fewer people and in less volume than many people feared. So after the 2016 election, there was a search for why such an unexpected uh, outcome could have taken place. And one of the answers people gravitated towards was the rise of these untrustworthy websites. And so it was natural for people to think that this new element might have explained this uh, surprising outcome. But in fact, um, my co-authors, uh, Andy Geth and Jason Reifler, and I found that most people uh, didn't see 
these untrustworthy websites. Um, fewer than half of all Americans uh, visited them in the weeks before the 2016 election, uh, according to web browser data that we've uh, analyzed. And the exposure was really concentrated among a relatively small subset of Americans who were overwhelmingly likely to vote for Trump regardless, right? They already were uh, very likely to be Trump supporters, and there's no measurable difference in their vote intention. The estimates are imprecise, but we find no associated change in their turnout intentions either. So it doesn't seem like exposure to untrustworthy information you know, played this critical role in the outcome of the 2016 election the way some people expect. Yeah. So, so you write in, in that paper that, you know, fake news may have limited effects beyond increasing beliefs in false claims, um, which I found really interesting because it kind of suggests that perhaps we shouldn't be so concerned about increased beliefs in, in false claims. Um, so is it that we shouldn't be worried that those beliefs increase or that there is a problem, it's just maybe not of the same magnitude that a lot of people might think? I, w- I would say the latter. So the paper you're talking about was a, another paper with the, the same co-authors and, and uh, several other additional ones that just came out in Misinformation Review, where we showed that both observational and experimental data suggested that exposure to untrustworthy information online did seem to increase misperceptions, but that even when we experimentally manipulated exposure to false information, it didn't seem to have the kinds of effects people might expect. It didn't seem to change people's vote preference. It didn't seem to make them feel more negatively towards the other party and so forth. So is that bad or good? It depends what your starting point was. I think some people say, well, the misinformation is bad enough. And I certainly agree with that point. But I think many other people wanted to point to untrustworthy news as the source of greater polarization as a source of changes in people's vote preference. And we wanted to say, well, hold on, there's no strong evidence to support those claims right now. And you know, while more research needs to be done, we only showed people a single article. And it's possible these effects are only observed if there's a high dosage of that kind of information. At least for now, it's not clear that uh, untrustworthy news is this kind of all-powerful changer of people's political beliefs and attitudes the way people expect. Um, but to be sure, misinformation is a, a real concern. And I think one conclusion you might draw from our findings is that we need to think more carefully about the ways in which the pervasiveness of misinformation might change our politics. Right? So you might worry, for instance, that misinformation changes policy debates right, over issues like climate change or healthcare. You might worry normatively about citizens understanding of the political world in just a fundamental way if they're being misinformed. So all those things can still matter. It's just a different conversation than the one we've been having, at least in some circles since 2016. So can I just hone in on that piece of your methodology then? Because I think just to play devil's advocate, one way to read your finding is you showed people a single uh, false claim or false article, uh, and that changed their belief in, in false claims. That's quite remarkable and seems quite powerful. What would you say to that? Uh, sadly, that is, uh, that is true. And, uh, you know, it's consistent with lots of um, research we've seen that uh, mere exposure to false claims causes people to be more likely to think that they're true. So we do have to worry if 
for instance, these kinds of dubious claims are being amplified by social media platforms. That's a worrisome problem. And just people seeing them is enough to make them think they're uh, more valid. And that's a convergent finding, I think, from a number of researchers in this literature. So I feel pretty confident saying it. The questions that we don't have as strong an answer for is how long those effects last and if they accumulate in some unexpected way. Is there some way in which being exposed to lots of these kinds of false, usually highly negative, highly emotional claims, does that have some cumulative effect that we can't observe when we simply show people a, a single article? That's possible, but it, it raises some really difficult ethical questions. How much of this type of content is appropriate to show people in the course of a study? And we wanted to be very careful, so we only showed people a single article in this one. So so does that mean then, that it, I mean, if there is this possibility that, as you say, sort of a sustained barrage of highly negative misinformation could have a separate effect than, you know, one or two articles out there that President Trump may be kind of sui generis as far as uh, responses to misinformation and disinformation go? The volumes of misinformation from from the president seem unprecedented. We don't have comparable measurement for prior presidents, in part because the fact checkers didn't exist prior to 2008 and thereabouts and um, weren't inspired to document false claims with this level of granularity before. But it, it certainly seems unprecedented. Right? There's a kind of giant science experiment being run right now. If, if the president makes 16,000 plus false or misleading claims in three years, um, what effect does that have? Now, it may be the case that when it's coming from the president, people can appropriately discount it and that many of the people who are following politics closely enough to receive these messages uh, are less likely to be influenced by them precisely because they're already relatively knowledgeable and relatively polarized. And for both of those reasons, it may have less of an effect on them than the people who follow politics less closely. Um, but you know, these are open questions, and they're they're ones that are um, difficult to study. But they may, it is possible that the cumulative effects are real. So, for instance, when the uh, Fox News Channel was first uh, rolled out across the country, that has been found to have had uh, measurable effects on Republican vote share and on the behavior of legislators as it rolled out uh, into different areas. So it does seem like that cumulative effect of that kind of content did have important consequences. It's not impossible we'd see the same thing here, but um, these are unfortunately just really difficult scientific questions to answer. It's interesting that you mentioned Fox News some of the most important or, or most covered research about the 2016 election was a book called Network Propaganda. And correct me if I'm mischaracterizing, but the argument of that book uh, seems to be that the role of social media is somewhat overemphasized in the debate around uh, misinformation in comparison to the impact of the mainstream media uh, and the right-wing news ecosystem like Fox News and like Breitbart. Do you have a view on that debate? I mean, it's interesting as well that you say we're, we're running this real-time big science experiment because we have, for the first time, sort of all this information about what's happening, or, or we don't have, but the platforms are sort of a new thing that we're studying only in the past few years. Do you have a view on how that new vector uh, relates to the prior ecosystem? Yeah, no, I think the point you're making is an important one. One of the things that, you know, I, my co-authors and I keep doing as we participate in this debate over the effect of untrustworthy news online is just to encourage people to remember the denominator. Remember how much news and information people get about a high-profile topic like the 2016 election. And 
it's easy to overstate how closely Americans follow the news because many people uh, don't make it a priority. But it is still the case that they do get lots of pieces of information from different sources. And those tend to come from more mainstream sources than people often remember. That the, the you know, if you want to say where are people most likely to encounter false or misleading claims about politics, it's still in the mainstream news. And if you wanted to say what is the most important source of those false or misleading claims, it's the president of the United States, right? He is the most covered individual in the world. He is heavily featured in the news sources that Americans get most of their news from. So it's, it's not surprising that the exposure rates to uh, falsehoods from Trump are going to be vastly higher than a website set up by Macedonian teenagers. Uh, and, and, and that means that you know, when we're thinking about this problem, it's important not to focus so much on on the kinds of websites that popped up after 2016. They're a problem. They're part of a, this ecosystem, and in some ways, they're they're symptomatic of larger questions that we need to think about. But they're not they're not the core source of of, of, of misinformation for almost anybody. And you know, in some ways, they're more important for what they tell us about the vulnerabilities of our system to misinformation and you know, the kinds of, of questions we're going to have to think about how to address going forward. So that gets to another paper you you wrote in, in 2018 about echo chambers, right? So the, this idea that, you know, maybe there is something that is uniquely harmful about social media in terms of how people consume news that, you know, if I'm on Facebook, if I'm on Twitter, that the algorithms these platforms put together to encourage people to spend more time on those platforms and click on links uh, will feed me stuff that basically fits with my preconceived political notions or perhaps is even more radical and sort of pushes me in a more uh, hardcore direction. Um, but so you've written this paper that suggests that actually the echo chamber effect may be less prevalent than people think. Um, can you just tell us a little bit about that? Sure. I think, as with fake news, it's an area where um, anecdote has outrun data. There are a lot of fears about technology producing this echo chamber style effect where people are disproportionately getting exposed to like-minded sources of information. That's a real concern. That possibility is one we should worry about. The point we make in the article, though, is that whenever systematic efforts have been made to assess the prevalence of echo chamber style consumption patterns, researchers find that people's media diets are more diverse and balanced than that claim would suggest, right, on average. So in other words, the average person's media diet is more balanced than Cass Sunstein, for instance, would have warned in the kind of Republic.com style hypothesis. Um, that's his famous book that um, helped popularize this notion. And it is, you know, so, so the question then is, what do we make of this hypothesis? Well, there are some people who have skewed information consumption patterns. We do see them in the data, but they're really a minority of Americans. And so there's this more nuanced conversation we need to have. It's not that everyone's in echo chambers, but those people who are most politically active and knowledgeable and often visible online are um, the most likely to have slanted information patterns. They're, in other words, the most likely to have echo chamber style source of information shaping their views. And so we need to think about um, how you know, how to address those problems without mischaracterizing it as something that everyone's immersed in. 
Another important point, though, that people miss is when you're thinking about echo chambers, you need to think about all the different ways people get information, and that goes beyond the online sphere. So, for instance, one of the most important echo chambers in everyone's life are their friends and family who are much more likely to share their views than the media sources uh, that they uh, get their information from. So, you know, our, your social networks are often an echo chamber uh, to a much greater extent than the places you get your news and information online. So this is a broader problem than just uh, technology. It's not one that's specific to technology. Again, there are reasons for concern. There's reasons that to think social media platforms may be exacerbating tendencies towards people uh, picking and choosing the kinds of information they want to get on the margin. And we need to talk about those. But it's not this mainstream phenomenon in the way that the, the, the public conversation has often suggested. My favorite thing about this paper of yours uh, is the title, Avoiding the Echo Chamber About Echo Chambers, because, I mean, that's so very true. We're still sort of hearing this narrative uh, all the time about echo chambers on, on social media and filter bubbles. Have you received a lot of pushback on the paper, and, and what does that look like, or, or what's your response to the fact that we're still seeing this narrative everywhere all the time? I feel powerless to stop the narrative. At the same time, I haven't gotten as much pushback as I would have expected. So maybe I'm in my own echo chamber of people who don't believe in echo chambers. Um, it's, just hard, it's hard to know. Um, but um, at, you know, at a minimum, I think, um, at least in the community of people who work with empirical data on where people get their information, the conversation has moved forward in, in important ways. And, and I think, so I think that slowly at least the specialists are, are progressing forward. The question is, when will that knowledge get transmitted out to the broader conversation? And how can we crystallize that more nuanced set of findings in a way that um, translates to a, to a broader audience? The echo chamber hypothesis was so crisp and compelling, and the messiness of the real data so far hasn't, hasn't been nearly as, as, as interesting to people. Maybe a podcast is a good way of getting uh, this narrative out to the broader uh, broader audience. <laughs> Fair enough. Yeah. I mean, Evelyn, <laughs> Evelyn is right though that uh, I mean, one of the things that we've been trying to talk about and explore here is the extent to which, first off, everyone kind of freaked out after 2016 and ran around saying, oh my God, oh my God, what's happening? And then second off, the extent to which in the intervening four years, our understanding of disinformation and misinformation online has grown more nuanced and sophisticated. So in your view, you you said that within the community of academics studying this, the, the more nuanced view has become more mainstream. But is your impression that people outside that community who maybe aren't exposed to that academic literature are as enamored of the echo chamber hypothesis as ever? Or has there has there started to be some degree of nuance in the public discussion? I, I wish I were seeing more nuance than what we actually observe. I think one reason the echo chamber hypothesis is appealing is it supposes a kind of relatively simple solution to the polarization we see. We observe people visibly disagreeing, uh, not just over opinions, but over matters of fact. And it's easy to say, well, if they only got their information from more balanced sources, then we could agree, right? If not on uh, matters of opinion, at least on matters of fact. And I think it's much harder to say, actually, in a lot of cases, people are observing the same facts and coming to very different 
conclusions, right? Both in terms of how they interpret those facts and the opinions that they draw from them. That's harder. And I think people really want that. There, there's, a, there's a search out there for some kind of magical solution to the polarization we observe. It can be so disconcerting for people. And uh, it's much easier to say, well, people are just being led astray by the information that they're consuming. And, um, you know, of course, in some cases that's true, but it's not a kind of simple explanation in the way uh, people uh, would hope, especially when I think some people's models of politics are being shaped by the political conversation they see on cable news and online, which is wildly unrepresentative. The kinds of people who are participating in those conversations are much more polarized, much more knowledgeable, have much more skewed information dyes than the average person. And I think it makes salient these kinds of concerns. And the people participating in those conversations are, you know, disproportionately likely, as we talked about, to be, you know, in echo chambers, so to speak. And it's easy to infer from that that's just where Americans are, as opposed to these people are really weird. <laughs> they are statistically very unusual. Um, th this is not n normal Americans political experiences is not where they get their information. Yeah, I do think that there, you know, the, there was this kind of instinct to say after the 2016 election, like, ah, the internet is bad now. <laughs> and the part of that means that, you know, we have to fix the internet, which is a huge problem. But on the flip side, if we fix the internet, then everything will be okay again. And that is not true. I mean, so that that does get to a question I want to ask you, though, which is, it feels a lot like we're trying to figure out whether the internet is making things worse or whether the internet is reflecting a way in which things have already been getting worse, right? That there's already been political polarization and the internet is is reflecting that. What do you think about that sort of opposition? Yeah, I, I think it's an important point. You know, I'm an academic, so I'm going to tell you it's probably some combination of the two. There's no one <laughs> single answer. Um at the same time, though, I think your instinct is right, which is to remind us that in some ways the Internet reflects and makes visible things in our society that uh, we're already there. Um, and it, just the fact that you can observe polarization on social media doesn't mean it, social media created that polarization. It's very hard for us to separate those ideas, though. I think, I think again, there's this notion if we just took um, the Internet away, um, everything would be better. Now, again, there are these places where you can point to um, specific aspects of the internet or so social media platforms and say, these might be making polarization worse on the margin, right? So there's a paper, for instance, that by some political scientists, which finds that the rollout of broadband internet seems to have helped create a small increase in polarization. Right? So it's not that there's no role whatsoever. And that has via some effects on news consumption and so forth. So it's not like technology plays no role here. But at the same time, the economist uh, Matthew Genskow has a paper where he shows that the people who polarized the most by generation are the oldest Americans who are the least likely to be engaging with these new technologies, right? So um, these larger trends are, are going on and the internet is at best just a part of it. And it's just a very visible part. And, and I think we, we, we just struggle over and over again to make that separation. Yeah, or even a more radical position, I mean, based on that finding and the finding that you mentioned earlier, that there's sort of more evidence of echo chambers in real life, perhaps, than online. Uh, is there, you know, blasphemy, but is there any possibility that the internet is good um, and, and helps people diversify their information uh, sources, or is that going too far? 
In some cases, there are findings that uh, people's information diets online are more diverse than their or similarly diverse to their offline information diets to their friends and family and, and, and so forth. Um, so I think it's really going to vary. And we of course, we all can think of lots of examples where the Internet has made possible uh, a kind of diversity of information sources that that benefits us. And if you really think about it, a lot of what people are encountering online uh, is the kind of political content they wouldn't necessarily seek out. Like, so the social media feed, if you elaborately tailor social media feeds, yes, you can make them into echo chambers. And yes, there may be some ways that algorithms make that tendency worse. At the same time, there are lots of weird kinds of spillovers and chance encounters with news that happen in those contexts. And those often are not with viewpoints or um, piece of information you might otherwise have encountered. And that's what we like to see in news. You know, the old model of, of how things like newspapers and television news could work is that people would watch for the sports or read for the sports and the weather or some other piece of uh, the so-called bundle of news that was being provided. And in the, in the process, they might encounter some hard news they wouldn't have otherwise seen. And I, I think there are lots of those kinds of chance encounters happening in social media too. And it's just, it's just not a simple story of, you know, people mainlining one uh, kind of content. Uh, and again, the people who are mainlining one kind of content, they're probably doing it offline too. Their friends and family are probably, you know, their friends especially are probably highly sorted. They might be mainlining their preferred cable news station all day long, right? And so forth, right? Um, so it's not clear that the internet is is, is kind of the driving force here. And, and, and really what this underscores is the problem with all senses of the form, the internet is having an effect blank, right? You know, that's, it's, it's not a, it's not a especially well-posed question. It's just too complex to even think of effects at that level of, of uh, generality. Uh, you know, the, we, we have to be more specific. Okay, so this gets to one of your other findings, the difficulty of correcting the narrative about echo chambers, um, which has persisted despite your findings. Um, let's talk about your finding around the backfire effect and the difficulty of correcting misinformation or misperception once people are exposed to it. Can you talk a little bit about your research and findings in that area? Sure. This is the first paper that my co-author Jason Reifler and I um, wrote about misinformation. And it was inspired by my work doing uh, fact-checking in the 2001 to 2004 period, which included the um, invasion of Iraq. Um, and Jason had done research on public opinion about Iraq. So we started with fact-checking beliefs among Americans that Iraq had weapons of mass destruction immediately before the U.S. invasion, which the Bush administration itself acknowledged was untrue. So in experimental studies, we manipulated uh, the presence of corrective information in the context of a mock news article to see how effective it was at changing people's factual beliefs. And what we found was in two of the five studies we conducted that the corrective information caused an increase in the misperception among the group of respondents we would expect to be most predisposed to resist that corrective information. So in this case, it was conservatives because there were uh, the two studies where we observed this so-called backfire effect were claims by uh, conservatives that were being debunked. Um, and so uh, we, we wrote that paper and it was very depressing finding, of course. And the, the challenge has been in the period since, as the evidence base has grown in this field, as more people have come to study misinformation and as Jason and I have done more studies, the general finding is that uh, corrective information does reduce misperceptions less than we might hope. But the general effect is to 
reduce them. Um, and so now I find myself trying to correct a misperceptions about how hard it is to correct misperceptions, um, which is a very meta experience. Um, <laughs> and um, one, one I'm still uh, working to, you know, one more misperception I'm trying to uh, address. So I don't think people should give up hope on the effectiveness of fact checking and other kinds of corrective information. The body of evidence in the field s suggests it does have valuable effects on average. Our preferred interpretation of our finding, and I'd be curious what you think is, it at least highlights the risk that if that information uh, provokes a strong enough reaction, it might be ineffective or potentially even counterproductive. But we certainly don't think that's the typical response, and that's what the data suggests. Yeah, there's been such a lot of focus on fact-checking in recent debates as the sort of go-to solution or perhaps the you know magic pill that's going to solve a lot of the pathologies that we're currently experiencing i think when we talk about the political advertising debate that rages on about whether platforms should carry political advertising or whether they should fact check them sort of that's seen as the key potential cure-all for for false advertising um so it's it's great that you think that there is still hope and 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 usefulness but i'd be interested to know how powerful you think it's going to be especially at scale and um sort of the the real practical uh realities of like choosing which facts to check uh, does the kind of fact matter and 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 the way in which it's presented to people yeah that's a great question it's one we're thinking about most of the studies that I'm describing are take the form of either an article or a series of articles where you are given the, a fact check of a claim um, that is somehow salient or, or relevant. So we think there's a really important targeting problem in this field. It may be the case that if you see corrective information, it reduces that misperception, but the misperception is held among people who mostly aren't exposed to the fact check. So the fact checks aren't reaching the people who need them most. Um, and we find evidence consistent with that account in our study of untrustworthy websites. The fact check stories from those um, sites that we're able to identify, we find that very, very few of the respondents who were exposed to those false stories were also exposed to the corresponding fact check. So there's a really serious targeting problem. Now, the platforms can address this because they know you're about to see an untrustworthy article if, if one of their fact-checking partners has tagged it. And so they can alert you to that, the presence of that fact-check that uh, debunks the claim in question. So they do have a, a kind of special position in their ability to solve that targeting problem. Uh, the challenge they face at scale, is, as I think you're alluding to, is that it's just very hard to keep up with the flow of misinformation. And so most of the false claims that are out there won't have a corresponding fact check attached to them. So that targeting problem can still persist in the sense that the, the fact checkers are only able to cover a small percentage of the claims we might worry about. The other worry you might uh, think about is why these fact check effects don't seem to last very well. It was quite highly salient that the U.S. didn't find weapons of mass destruction in Iraq, but the all the articles and all the TV news coverage highlighting that fact were not enough to kill that misperception that Iraq had had weapons of mass destruction. In fact, it persisted for years afterward, despite very high salience coverage. The same is true of the, the birther myth. Among the set of people who believed that Barack Obama wasn't born in this country, even his long-form birth certificate wasn't enough 
to drive that belief down to zero where it should have been. And and so we, we have this problem of, of making these effects stick in a way that um, we haven't yet solved. Yeah, I, I'd love to go back to what you were saying earlier about the the role of a sort of emotional connection to the issue at stake and how that affects people's willingness to to be corrected. Because, again, I don't want to beat a dead horse too much, but it does seem to me that part of the current political environment in the United States is that things that you don't think would be emotionally charged become incredibly emotionally charged. So, for example, we're recording this on uh, Monday, February 3rd. Um, It's the day after the Super Bowl. President Trump tweeted something about Kansas City, Kansas. And now there's massive discussion on social media about you know, whether he was properly referring to the Kansas City in Kansas or the Kansas City in Missouri, which seems like a basically dumb argument about geography that affects nobody. But <laughs> there is this kind of, you know, identitarian rally around the flag effect of, you know, what Kansas City you're referring to and that the the president and his opponents as well are, are capable of of generating real emotional energy around issues that might not seem significant. So does that mean then that in in an environment that is already very polarized and sort of dry tinder ready for a match that fact checking is just going to be inherently less effective? It seems more challenging in this environment. There's no question I would say two things. Uh, one is that there's, we have to worry about uh, factual domains becoming politicized. So if you were to go- going to try to address the problem of climate change misinformation, you can do so now, of course, but it's very difficult because that issue has already become so politicized. People have deep identity-related reactions to corrective information about that issue. But if you went back 20 years, of course, most people would have no idea. It would not have been an especially salient or emotional issue at all. So we need to think about when these domains become politicized in that way and how we can have fruitful democratic conversations without the facts themselves becoming politicized. That's the the first thing I would say. The second is this point you're making that at any moment, if the political divides of the day become attached to a factual question, it just gets harder for people to step back and admit that their side is wrong. Because at, at the point you're weighing in, to acknowledge that uh, a particular person is wrong is to say that your side was wrong or that some person you uh, regard highly uh, was incorrect. And in that context, it's just much harder. I don't know how to get around that. I think it's just an inescapable feature of our politics, but it is a challenging one when people are willing to make bad faith arguments. And when there's so little cost to doubling down on false information. I, I think shaming is underappreciated as a kind of check on misinformation coming from people in, in politics. You know, and I don't mean regular people here. I mean the politicians and pundits and other people who are out in the public sphere making these claims. It should be shameful to make false claims and bad faith claims in public. And we've become so uh, accustomed to people doing this that it it's almost – not even news anymore, right? When the president of the United States says something false over and over and over again, reporters stop reporting it as news. It should be news every time. And and, and there should be a, a real shame attached to um, making these kinds of, of, of false claims. And, um, you know, that's the only response I can point to. And it, it's a weak one, as we've seen uh, in the post-2016 uh, uh, era, when uh, shame seems to be in short supply. But, um, you know, it, it's at least one thing you can do that's consistent with with open debate under the First Amendment. 
I would say it is news almost every time and there is shame, but it's normally directed at the platforms uh, rather than the politicians at this stage. So, <laughs> Well, th- no, that, that that's right. I mean, I think w- one thing that, that's happened now, and I, I, I want to draw this point out because I think it's important. I, I think a lot of people who are worried about misinformation feel powerless because of the lack of shame that's seemingly being felt by people making false claims in public. They then turn to the platforms and demand them to kind of fix our politics, right? demand that they make all the misinformation go away. And I think we need to be really careful about that impulse. There are reasons to worry about uh, misinformation being amplified on the platforms, and I've done a lot of work on that. At the same time, I'm not sure I want three or four big companies to be the truth police for our entire political debate. And I'm seeing a lot of people slip sliding very quickly from there is bad misinformation on the platforms to the mis- the platform should um, fact check everything going out uh, under their auspices. And I'm just not sure we've really thought through the implications of that argument and what it might do to, to our politics to give these giant corporations that kind of power. You know, this is actually something that Evelyn and I have have spoken about a lot recently um, regarding the president's tweet specifically (laughs) and the sort of cries for Twitter to, you know, shut down his Twitter account or something like that. It does remind me of... You know, the, the same thing we were talking about earlier in terms of, you know, the the Internet, social media exacerbating division. Well, of course, the solution is just to turn to social media and say, fix it. In this case, it's, you know, turn to social media and say, you know, fix this problem, please. And that there there is a kind of looking to what's seen as an external arbiter to provide a quick fix to something that is just a really naughty political problem with the democratic structure of the United States itself. That's right. And I, I think you're seeing um, Facebook in particular being just caught flat-footed over and over again as it tries to handle these demands that are essentially asking it to act as a kind of government in all these ways. And it's retrofitting all these elaborate neutrality, uh, you know, measures like having third party fact checkers, having this bizarre Supreme Court style content moderation board and so forth. Um, They're just very strange things for a company to do, but it's reflecting what they're being asked. And I just want I just want people to think harder about what they are asking Facebook to do. So let's take the the point Evelyn made earlier about the the false advertising on the platforms. It is true that non-broadcast television can refuse ads they deem to be false. That is true. But that decision has always been made on a case-by-case basis in a decentralized way. There's lots of different affiliates. There's lots of different cable stations. If Facebook imposes a ban on false advertising, that will operate on a scale we've never seen before. That, that zeroes out one of the most important channels of advertising for the whole country. Do you want Facebook or the fact checkers it works with to have that power over the ads that candidates can run? I just don't think people have thought about that very carefully. There's just this notion that that false information is bad, therefore Facebook should make it go away. And I would just encourage everybody to think about the fact check that has infuriated you the most in the last five to 10 years and imagine that now being used to shut down an ad by a candidate you support making that claim that you thought was defensible. That's what we're talking about. And it's it's not in one station or in one market, it's for the whole country. That's a really big intervention. And this is why it's so important to understand the magnitude of the problem. People have these false senses of, of the effects of false advertising, the effects of false information that go way beyond what the data can, can suggest. And that, in turn, I think, prompts them to uh, support 
these massive changes to how our politics work that I think uh, are based on a real misdiagnosis of the problem and then a lack of consideration of what the implications of the solution would be. I mean, I can't resist with that. What's the fact check that has infuriated you most uh, in the last 10 years? Oh, geez, I'm going to sound like I'm picking on someone. Well, no, I mean, look, I, I, you know, I interact with the fact checkers. I respect their work. I think in general, it's quite high quality. And there's um, obviously things I disagree with that aren't done as well. But when uh, people have looked at the correspondence between the fact checkers, the things that are seen as uh, at either end of the spectrum, kind of mostly true or true, mostly false or false, there's quite a high degree of consensus at either end of of the spectrum between the fact checkers, which suggests that they're they're picking up on something common, right? There are real facts that are being discerned. Um, you know, one example of a fact check that I publicly criticize, and this is nothing uh, new, is um, Glenn Kessler at the Washington Post, who's an excellent fact checker, wrote a fact check criticizing President Obama for saying he had a plan to reduce the deficit. And he said, uh, and the, the the White House said, well, we do have a plan. It's on our website. And and Kessler said, well, but it, it's not politically realistic to get through Congress. And that to me highlights the, the risk of, of, of kind of semantic distinctions, right? So his definition of what a plan was uh, differed uh, from the conventional understanding, right? So he wanted a politically realistic plan, but of course that's not what plan necessarily implies. And so uh, I think that was just a good example of where fact checks uh, sometimes the best practice is just to stand back and say, we're not going to weigh in on this one, right? The fact checkers don't have to adjudicate every claim. There's lots of messy, subjective, semantic kinds of disputes that happen in our politics that just don't have clear answers. And that's fine, right? That's politics. You know, and I think the, the fact checkers would do well to preserve their authority for the cases where the answer is clear. And uh, because they're being asked to play such an important role right now, it's especially important for them to get things right and to be careful, not just about the conclusions they reach, but the debates that they wade into. With all that in mind, I'm, I'm curious what you think of Facebook's uh, much criticized partnerships with different uh, media organizations to provide fact checking services. There have been criticisms of the organizations that they chose to partner with, right, um, in terms of how aggressive those organizations are in terms of what they flag as true, false, mostly true, mostly false. It sort of it seems to point to the the difficulties that you will always run into in fact checking around the edge of what consensus is, right? Like the Daily Caller, is that something that we want to partner with or not? Some people might say that's within the realm of consensus and others don't. And Facebook kind of seems to run into that wall over and over again. Yeah, it's a difficult challenge. Um, there's no set of media organizations that everyone is happy with. Um, Facebook has been erring on the side of including conservative partners in that uh, set of organizations that they've worked with on fact checking. They do have to be a member of the kind of international fact checking network and and to meet the standards of that group. Whether that's enough, I think is is an open question. Um, I mean, look, I think the partnership is generally fine. I think where it raises the most difficult challenges are when either there is disagreement among the fact checkers um, or when a article or a clip or other piece of information is tagged that people arguably have a kind of public interest in being able to see. So just like we were talking about people, uh, the demand for Trump's uh, Twitter account to be taken down, what if Donald Trump wrote a, a op-ed for the New York Times that had false claims in it? 
And the New York Times published it and said he gets to say what he wants. Um, we're providing this space because he's the president of the United States and he should get to speak to the American people in this way. And what if the fact checkers then tag it as false? Under the current model, the, re the reach of that link would be reduced dramatically. Uh, the quoted statistic is 80% fewer people would be exposed to that content once it's been tagged as false. Right. So do we think fact checkers should be intervening on people's ability to see uh, a, you know, an article from the president of the United States? Right. That's a really hard question. Right now, the fact checkers have often been tagging stuff from outside of the mainstream, the fringe kind of clickbait sites, the the foreign uh, fake news sites, those kinds of sources. And I think the consensus that tagging those and downranking those is appropriate is pretty strong. It's much harder, though, when it comes to these mainstream actors where people arguably have a right to see that. And under the current model, most of them won't. So that empirical claim or that statistic gets to something that I'm obsessed with in this area, um, which is that, you know, free speech theory and law has been based for centuries around a lot of ideas about how speech flows through society and what effects it has on people. Uh, and we're currently, for the first time in history perhaps, sitting on a bunch of data that can show that, but it's locked up within these companies. I'm curious to ask you, uh, as, as someone doing some of the most important and interesting work, empirical work in this space, what's the key piece of information that you would want or key piece of data that you think would really unlock some valuable findings in this, in this space? Yeah. Well, I mean, it's, it's everything inside Facebook. I mean, to a first <laughs> approximation, the whole, the whole debate about social media is really about Facebook. Now, some people are worried about YouTube too. I'd say that's probably concern number two, but we talk about Twitter a lot because uh, a lot of elite debate happens there and because their data are more open, but Facebook is where the action is. And um, the challenge has been how to unlock these questions we've never been able before to even try to answer, even think about answering. And now we, we, we can, um, or at least in principle, we, we can. And, and so just full disclosure, um, I'm on an advisory committee to this Social Science One initiative that's been trying to allow researchers to study data from Facebook. Now, that is walled off, so it's 2017 and thereafter. No data from 2016 is available, and it's taken multiple years to get even the most limited data out of the company. So that's a real challenge. The legal and privacy questions are very difficult, and the company is very risk averse, um, given how much criticism they've taken. And so it's not clear how much we're going to be able to get out. And I think it's a shame, but it's, it's also understandable. It's a really complex question. I mean, I certainly would love to know uh, how much of the kinds of untrustworthy website content that um, we study in our data, people were exposed to in their newsfeed. And that's a question we just can't answer. It comes up again and again. We present our data and we say, look, this is the percentage of people who went to these websites. And people say, well, what did they say see on Facebook? And we say, um, we don't know. No one can answer that question uh, outside of Facebook. And, you know, my theoretically informed guess is that momentary exposure to stuff in your newsfeed has very limited effects that disappear very quickly. But I can't prove that. And, you know, this is one area where Facebook's concern about public relations, I think, actually has hurt them because they would really benefit from credible outside parties being able to show what the effect of exposure to these things on Facebook is. I think it's often much smaller than people think. 
for all the reasons we've been talking about, people are exaggerating the effects of these platforms. Um, but you know, Facebook is just so risk averse at this point, um, and the legal and privacy issues are so complex that it's mostly locked down. Well, with that, with that plea for more data, <laughs> let, let's end it there. Brendan, thank you so much for joining us. My pleasure. Thanks for being with you. You've been listening to Arbiters of Truth, the Lawfare Podcast's miniseries on disinformation. You can find past episodes in the Lawfare Podcast feed, and we'll be back with another episode next Thursday. The Lawfare Podcast is produced in cooperation with the Brookings Institution. Thanks this week to Brendan Nyhan. Our music is performed by Sophia Yan. Our audio engineer was Jacob Schulz, and our producer is Jen Pache Howell. Please rate and review the Lawfare Podcast on the podcasting app of your choice. And as always, thanks for listening. <laughs>